everybody. Welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I am your host, Krista Nichols, and I've finally gotten my microphone to work again. There was some issue with the adapter. I just replaced it, and it worked perfectly, so hooray! Um, I am your host for the Historical Paranormal, also researcher, producer, everything, uh, for this one-woman show, but... As you've noticed, my episodes have been few and far between, and the reason for that is my hectic life, which I have been kind of hinting at. There's been a move, there's been a couple of job changes, there's been a lot going on. And another part of that is actually a divorce. And I've been very reticent to discuss this type of thing, one, because I'm a very private person. But another reason is that I just don't want to hear the I'm sorry's and the oh gosh, you poor thing type comments. No good marriage ends in divorce. I believe a now canceled comedian said that. And regardless of his cancellation status, it is true. I'm happier. I'm sure my ex is happier knowing that that period of strife in our lives is over. So if you're going through this, if you have gone through this, know that you're in good company and all is for the best. Things will work out as they should. But other than that, things are pretty steady and calm, which is my favorite way for them to be. So good news on that front. I'll be able to focus more on things that make me happy. And this podcast was originally started two years ago. Um, or almost three years ago. I want to say three years ago. Oh my gosh, time flies. Um, this podcast was originally started as a way to cope with depression and uh, a lack of fulfilling activities in my life that would focus on me instead of focusing on somebody else. And I think for everyone, that's so important. And I can hear my mom now, which I don't think she listens to the show anymore, but I think after certain episodes, she was done. <laughs> but Um, I think if she had heard that, she would be like, no, your child and your husband should be the most fulfilling things in your whole life forever. And that's just not who I am. I, they are my child anyway, is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done, but it is still focusing on somebody else. And I was doing zero of that at the time in June of 2019, when I published my first episode and now we're 48 episodes in. So I want to get back to why I started this. And get back to activities that do focus um, on something that I love. And I love to research. So without any further ado, let's get back to that. So we left the Borden family in pretty much tatters, um, starting to rebuild after Loudwick lost his wife and two children to uh, his wife, (laughs) And that tragedy was just being gotten over when Andrew Jackson Borden married his first wife. So let's actually get into a little bit before that. Um, Let's get into Andrew Borden's life and who he was. So Andrew and his father both had to work hard for their money, however they got it. Um, His father would miss most of the boom that took place in Fall River So Andrew would grow up with a strong work ethic and a frugality that he would keep throughout his life when it came to his own comforts and those of his family. Andrew Jackson Borden was born to Abraham Bowen Borden and Phoebe Borden 
on September 13th of 1822 in Fall River, Bristol, Massachusetts. While by no means poor, his family had to work every day for a living with many more wealthy families, including the other branch of the Bordens in the city living on the hill. And by the way, I keep mentioning this. I mentioned it in the last show and I'll keep doing it because it will have a greater weight later on when we look at possible motives for the murders. So it's difficult to find a lot of information on Andrew's likes, dislikes, and life prior to the murders. We know that while his family didn't struggle for money, he most certainly did as he was establishing himself later on. He began his adult life as an undertaker, which I can imagine was difficult and emotional work. And just to mention again, I know that there is kind of a misconception out there that people in any time before like 1950 uh, didn't mourn the people who they lost because they expected it so much. No, 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 no. And you'll see this coming uh, in the next few minutes here as we get into the story. They were very much mourned. While they did expect that this could be a thing, you know, it's possible uh, at that time that children and, and people would die a little easier than they do now. You know, it still hurt, right? You're still losing a part of your life, somebody you've grown up with. So I can imagine that this was hard work. Now, where I will say that there's a nugget of truth to that is that for an undertaker, they may have had an Andrew himself, having experienced loss early on as well, may have taken a less emotional view on it or take to it. Who's, who's to say? But he did that. He stayed doing that for quite some time. But in his business, he noticed that there was room for other options when it came to Fall River's coffin selection. So from there, he began constructing coffins to create another source of income. And he eventually did make enough selling and manufacturing coffins, and from there, furniture, to where he felt he could start a family. The upstanding woman who caught his notice was Sarah Anthony Morse. She was from an upstanding family in Fall River that had something in common with the Bordens and that there were poor members and rich members. Though, unlike the Bordens, not many members in the middle class. For example, Sarah's father, Anthony, sold tin from a street cart to make his living. And he was an artist and he did other things, but in every article that I could find, he was listed as a, a tin peddler. Also, I found an expression that I've never heard, and that is swamp Yankee. And I guess this was the so-called lower end of a lot of these families that were not spoken to or spoken of. And I've never heard that term in my life, so I thought I'd share that with you. Swamp Yankees. Interesting. But anyway, so she had experienced a life full of loss and disappointment up until the very moment they met. Many members of Sarah's family, including her own mother, had died of common illnesses, and three of her siblings had preceded her in death. Her father remarried within the year of her mother's dying, which was not uncommon at all at this point, but still probably caused some misery. So it must have been wonderful to meet a man who was self-made like her father, but more modern in his sensibilities. He loved her and wasn't like all the other men of his time who would keep his feelings to himself. It's universally agreed that their match was a love match. 
and their wedding was reported as an extremely happy occasion for everyone who attended. The couple immediately moved in with Andrew's sister, Lorana, and her husband, Hiram Harrington, upon marrying, and spent a few years enjoying each other's company and learning more about each other as partners. Four years into their marriage, they were blessed with their daughter, Emma. Sarah was overjoyed with her daughter and took pictures with her separate from Andrew, which wasn't a slight to him, but more of a fun occasion for the two of them. And I, I specifically say this because there's, there's a picture that it does exist, but it's also because it's something that wasn't really done too often back then. Photography was still very expensive. So to have a mother and daughter photo shoot is really special. So I thought I would mention that. And I have to say, I, I think they had some trouble getting pregnant. Not only was Emma born four years into the marriage, which was just definitely different and uncommon Five years after Emma, they did get pregnant with another daughter, Alice Esther. Um, unfortunately, the family would enjoy Alice's life for only two years. She passed away from what was termed dropsy at two years old, and I believe it was called dropsy of the head. So this could have been an illness that could have been congenital hydrocephalus or water on the brain. Um, it could have been any little thing. I mean, it's really hard to tell, but the loss must have been devastating. Sarah had grown up with loss all around her, but had never known it of her own children. She had maybe lost babies, like miscarried, but I don't think it was, at least it hasn't been recorded in history if she ever did. But to, to miscarry a child and then to have one die at two are two different things, and I can't imagine how she felt, but her health did decline at that point, and it was determined that she had uterine congestion, which is a condition of swollen veins in her lower abdomen, causing pooling of the blood in the veins, sharp pains, and bulging veins. And so Sarah really slowed down, which was commented on by her friends at the time, but she still had one more child, Elizabeth Andrew Borden was born on July 19th, 1860. Like Sarah, she was given her father's name as her middle name, and this was often done in families of English descent to indicate the child's parentage. After Lizzie's birth, though, Sarah's health continued to decline, and she passed away on March 26th, 1863, shortly before Lizzie's third birthday. Emma was 12 years old at the time of her mother's death, and I can't imagine how hard that must have been on her. Now, Lizzie, being so young, it's doubtful that she had any memories of her mother, uh, maybe very short ones, but there, there's nothing that exists to say that she did. Which makes sense, because of course, Lizzie was under three. Why would she remember? But a lot of articles online will speculate that Lizzie resented Abby because she replaced her mother in her mind. And maybe she wasn't very maternal, having no children of her own. I don't know, but there's really no basis in fact for that. So I'm putting it out there. If anyone had resentment towards Abby for replacing her mother, it would have been Emma. But we will get to that. So Sarah was laid to rest in the Oak Grove Cemetery and soon after, her father moved with his second wife, Rhoda, to Macopin, Illinois. 
He and Rhoda had two more children together, but it's unlikely that Sarah's children and his ever met. So that was that second wife, Rhoda, who he married directly, like within the year after um, Sarah's mom had died. And again, they had two children, but they didn't have two children until they had moved to Illinois. So I'm not sure why I'm including that, but it is of interest. So for two years, Andrew mourns Sarah's loss, but he finds solace in a friend, Abby Durfee Gray. They immediately bonded on both being from the less fashionable branches of two illustrious families in Fall River. And in addition to that, they also had the shared experience of being stepchildren. Abby's father had married relatively quickly after her mother's untimely death similar to Sarah's father, and he married a widow named Jane Eldridge. Jane was only two years older than Abby, her new stepdaughter, though, and while we don't know if it caused any strife between them, she certainly did understand what it felt like to have her mother supplanted by another woman. I mean, a woman who's only two years older? I don't know. (laughs) That would be a thing. But in this time, it, like we said in the last episode, it's really not that uncommon to see men marrying not only younger, but several times. So maybe it was just par for the course. Maybe she didn't think anything of it at all. Who knows? But Abby in general was a homebody who helped raise her niece and nephew as pretty much everyone around her were starting families and getting married. And she found a place to live with her sister, Jane, and her husband, who I believe his name was Elijah. But they had two kids, and she just had the best time helping to raise those two children. She loved them and treated them as if they were her own. So she was happy where she was at, but it still had to be kind of stifling, being that everyone did kind of move on except for her. But finally, at the age of 39, she met Andrew Borden. He was a self-made man who not only listened to her, but understood her. He, too, had chosen to marry late and sadly had lost his wife. Andrew then proposed after a good time dating, and Abby had only to pay out her portion of the home she shared with her sister's family. Now, Andrew understood and paid her family $1,500 around $27,265 in today's money to settle this debt on their engagement. And while there's really not a lot of sufficient explanation, I'm going to guess that they bought this home together and maybe she wanted to help them or pay it back. I'm not entirely sure how that went. But in any case, that's what had to happen before they got married is that she had to come up with $1,500 to buy out of the house. But this immediately caused a problem with Lizzie and Emma. Andrew Jackson Borden was a frugal man, as we've discussed. He was so frugal that despite being the president of a bank, owning property and several manufacturing houses, he still didn't have plumbing in his own home and regularly went without luxuries and fashionable items for himself and for his daughters. Understandably, they resented Abby from the start. And let's just be clear that it's probably not because of anything that she did, but because of how their father treated her in comparison. 
we don't really know what the dynamic was. We don't have anything that's concrete proof in what that dynamic was anyway. So we don't know if maybe Andrew did not treat their mother very well. And Emma helped to raise Lizzie with all of these, these types of comparisons um, against Abby for that reason. Who knows? Maybe that is the issue. It wasn't necessarily Abby, but it was both of them. But again, we really don't know. And again, on a comparison, I mean comparison to themselves too. And I can really relate to this in that you see a new person taking your mother's spot, right? And then being treated totally differently, which in some ways is fair because you should be learning lessons from your first marriage, however it ends and applying it to your second. But as far as how they were treated in comparison to their stepmother, I can definitely see how that could have been a problem. But again, we just don't have anything concrete, any statements by them or anybody else saying that there were issues. There are just so many articles about how she was mean to them and how Abby just kind of lorded her presence over them. But as far as I can tell, that was not the case. Um, her niece and nephew, who she used to love taking care of, really only visited her after her marriage uh, when the Borden girls were out because they just did not want to deal with them. They were very unkind to them. So there is that. But again, that's just hearsay. So instead of keeping their opinions to themselves on this subject, the Borden girls made their feelings well known to Andrew. And to placate them, he gave them his first home on Ferry Street. Now, the girls lived there for some time until around 1891 or 1892, early in that year, when the girls would sell back the home to their father for $5,000. Now, this would be about $162,790 in today's money, which we should take with a grain of salt. And I say this because when I looked up the real estate on the same block as the home we are speaking of, we've got two homes in the $265,000 to $270,000 region, and the rest are upwards of $545,000. The ones in the 260s and 270s, there were only two, and they were very small. And it could be that the home on Ferry Street was very small. I don't know, but they were also in the minority. The majority of the homes in that area are over 500,000. So these types of numbers are hard to calculate, especially inflation-wise, because land value and cost of materials have increased. And not just increased, they have skyrocketed past inflation. So I'm not going to go on a whole long rant here, but I will say that this is why quoting these numbers should be looked into and checked against what modern real estate prices are today. Now, as far as the rumors, as I was saying, that Abby and the Borden girls didn't get along because Abby herself wasn't kind to them, who knows? The only thing that we know for sure is that Abby was resented by the girls because their father gave her things that never made their way to them. And again, maybe he wasn't as gracious to their mother in her dying days as Emma would have liked. We do know that as the marriage continued, they often ate leftovers, foregoing always fresh-cooked meals to save money, which back then was often done in less fortunate families, not quite so fortunate as the Bordens. 
So maybe the magic of spending and showing off stopped by 1892 for Abby and Andrew, who knows? But on Lizzie's 30th birthday in 1890, she was given sealskin bags for traveling to cold climates, which kind of confused her because she didn't know what the actual birthday present was. But soon her father told her. Lizzie would be accompanied by four other girls, comprising of cousins and friends, to go on a grand tour of Europe. These grand tours used to be reserved for only the wealthy, and even then, mostly the men of those wealthy families, to go out and have their fun before starting or continuing with the family business. But at the end of the 19th century, the middle class could afford to go on these excursions as well. Shipping companies like Cunard and the White Star Line were making ocean liners to accommodate the vast migration of immigrants to the Americas and visitors to Europe. So Lizzie and her group set off for a long journey to Europe. And nowadays, to go to Europe as Americans, we'd be lucky to spend like, what, 10 days there? I mean, that would be a fantastic vacation. But Lizzie and her group spent a glorious 19 weeks traveling to England, France, Italy, probably Vienna. We actually don't have her itinerary from this trip, but it's safe to say she saw all of Europe. And at the time, a lot of the lines, especially Cunard, which was known for safety, would have gone to the major European countries and especially to Austria. Now, Austria was kind of experiencing a little bit of strife at the time. Um, However, Vienna would not have been necessarily wrapped up in that at that point. So um, it was really a great trip. And I'm not sure why Emma didn't go. I couldn't see that there was anything, any information on why she didn't go, but she did not. But as far as we can tell, Lizzie was overjoyed to be there. And it said that she bought a lot of prints from various shops, copying some of the greats and sketches. I'm sure she bought a few of the uh, fake ancient artifacts that were running or uh, probably still being sold in the streets of Europe today. Uh, But especially then, because they were about to hit Egyptomania. And um, I'm sure then maybe Egypt wasn't part of it, but Rome certainly was. So I'm sure there were some of those fake artifacts purchased, uh, as many people were the dupes of con artists back then. And oh my gosh, it must have been so easy to do too. But anyway, I won't even go on about that. The amount of time I spend thinking about how it must have been so much easier to make a living back then or to get away with making up false artifacts is embarrassing. So I won't even go into it, but (laughs) it is something I think of. I'm not that person, so I probably still wouldn't do it. Um, Or I'd be the person to be like, actually, you're dumb for buying this because in this ridge right here, you can see that that didn't even happen until like a century later. So this is obviously fake and you're dumb for buying it. Anyway, enjoy your purchase. That's the thing. I could not keep my mouth shut. So I would be the worst con artist ever. But anyway, I'm sure that coming back was difficult because Europe at this time and many of the salons would have been just absolutely opulent and gorgeous and the finest, most delicate clothing would have been worn. So I'm sure Lizzie came back with all of these ideas and Things And she had been known even from her earliest school days to be a sharp dresser with a witty and sarcastic mouth. And um, 
even with all that, she was still very reserved. I think she had one school friend that said that she stayed stayed with and made friends with, but she and Emma kind of kept to themselves. But that that yearning for grandeur, for living on the hill, for living a much more opulent life than they did was ever present. And I'm sure upon returning to Fall River, Massachusetts, it hadn't gone away. If anything, I think it reached a fever pitch. But here we are going to stop because at this point we are going to get into the actual murders. So that will be the next episode. I'm going to try and get it out to you as quickly as possible. I'm going to start research on it now. Um, if it does, I, I really hope it doesn't take another two months, but I'm, I'm working on it. So, um, this has been probably one of the more difficult episodes to research because there's so much information available about the murders, but so little information available about the people they were before that. And I always try to paint that picture because I'm so sick of the glorification of the murderer and not the glorification of the murdered or the victims in this case. Like, who were they before all of this? Who were they before they made headlines, you know? Or at least headlines in that way, because as we'll find out, there have been some newspaper clippings about Lizzie and her family before all of that. So with that, I will see you next time, and we will get into the actual murders of Angie Jackson Borden and Abby Durfee Gray Borden. And it's a lot. So the next episode is going to be fairly long because we are going to go through every minute detail because that's the thing. In this case, every single detail has been discussed down to the minute, y'all. So I'm excited to get into it and start making inferences. I'm starting to change my opinion. I'm starting to think maybe Lizzie didn't do it. But I mean, I know that I had said I know th- I think she knows who did. And I still think that. I think it might be Emma. I don't know. I, as far as motive goes, I'm seeing it for both, but definitely more for Emma. Cause you know, maybe she's really good at it. We don't see any information about her, but that's my opinion going into episode three that will probably be all murders and all the trial or just the murder. No, I don't know what it'll be. We'll see. I'm not sure yet if this will be a four episode or a five episode arc, and I'm starting to think it'll be five. So we will see. This is a much bigger undertaking than I ever thought that it would be. And I'm not surprised. I mean, there have been literal books written about this time frame and these people. So I'm not going to get every single detail, but I'm going to get as much as I can for you guys. So with that, I will see you later. Until next time, y'all be nice, be kind, be safe. Bye. Thank you for listening. The Historical Paranormal Podcast has been written, narrated, and produced by Krista Nichols. As always, thanks for listening, and thank you for reaching out if you have. I always, always appreciate it.